How do I know what I think until I see what I say? I'm your host, Jacob Goronsky, and welcome to From the Green Notebook, where we create leaders one podcast at a time. So if you don't feel like reading a blog today, then sit back and listen as we discuss some of the most important topics and talk with some of the most innovative leaders of today. So please subscribe and make sure you listen to these exclusive episodes. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic, the best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you're listening from, and welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. So as we close out the first season, and as we close out a year that has been tough for so many individuals, Joe and I wanted to take one more opportunity to express our sincere gratitude to our listeners. And we look forward to sharing some really great discussions and really great conversations in season two. Joe and I sat down after we recorded our eighth episode, our final episode of season one, and thought it would be great to share one more episode, a holiday special, with our listeners as a bit of a thank you. And as we talked about it a little further, we realized that most Americans love an underdog story. And movies like Rocky, Rudy, Invincible are just a few that come to mind. So while many of us prepare to celebrate the holidays, we thought it would be a great opportunity to also celebrate the momentous event that took place on December 25th, 1776. And that is Washington and his men crossing the Delaware. This is the ultimate underdog story. It's a story about Washington and a small group of 2,400 men, a ragtag army against a global superpower. Joining us to tell this story is Professor Harry S. Laver of the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College in Fort Leavenworth. He was a professor of history and political science at Southeastern Louisiana University and is also a Fulbright Scholar Awardee. He received a B.A. in zoology from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill in 1983, an M.A. in history from the University of North Carolina, Charlotte in 1992, and a Ph.D. in history from the University of Kentucky in 1998. Professor Laver has written multiple books to include The Leadership of Ulysses S. Grant, A General Who Will Fight, and The Art of Command, Military Leadership from George Washington to Colin Powell. So thank you again for joining us. Sit back, try and relax, and listen as Professor Laver shares with us not only why this was such a historic event, but also why we should still be studying George Washington as a leader today. So please welcome to the show, Dr. Harry Laver. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Appreciate it very much and uh, welcome. And just to start things off, I just wanted to ask you uh, quickly about George Washington and um, that image that we have of him crossing the, the Delaware. 
you know, that's all over the place. We see it in, in movies. We see it in paintings. Um, I remember as a kid, it was uh, Apollo Creed made his entrance in, in the Rocky movie um, with the, using that, that scene as well. So could you tell us a little bit about why it's such a powerful scene in, in American history and maybe a little bit about what happened that night and from what you've learned? Yeah, sure. The power of, of that scene comes from a, a painting that was, uh, the original was done in 1851 by a German artist, actually. And it, it, is, it is just part of our national consciousness, our national memory as Americans, because it is an extraordinarily compelling scene, right? Everybody knows, or I think most people know, this is the American Revolution. It's a critical time in the revolution. And the image shows Washington as this extraordinary leader, standing up, leading men uh, across the river, into battle. And there's a fair number of inaccuracies in the painting, as there, there often are. One is that there is sort of sunrise. Of course, the operation took place at night, but the sunrise representing the, the sunrise of this new nation. And so from the uh, first time it was publicly displayed, and the, there, a, a copy of it is now in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in New York. It's one of the ones done by the, the original author or original artist. Uh, it is just now part of our consciousness of who we are. So as you said, it's in movies, it's in cartoons, it's, it's almost everywhere. And it, it really depicts, I think, one of the critical turning points of the American Revolution, because the operation that the painting depicts is in December of, of 1776. And as, as we know, the United States didn't declare its independence until July of that year. So we're, we're only talking really a, a handful of months after the United States declares its independence. This is very early in the American Revolution when the rest of the world didn't expect there was revolution would be successful at all, that the superpower of the time, Great Britain, would quickly regain control of its, of its colonies. And there was good reason for that skepticism, uh, because at this point in the war, Washington, uh, in command of its stretching it to call it a professional army, uh, but Washington in command of the Continental Army had engaged with the British a few months earlier in August of 1776 around New York City and made some serious errors as a commander. He was still learning on the job, but he escaped. In September and October and November, Washington fought a series of battles against the British, really being beaten at almost every turn, forcing him to continue to retreat after each of these losses. And by late November, he found himself really fleeing from the British army that was pursuing him across New Jersey. And Washington was, was bound and determined to put the Delaware River that separates New Jersey from Pennsylvania between him and the, the British forces that, that were following. And he was able to do this. But he recognized that uh, if he did not do something to turn the tide, that the revolution itself may be lost. He had, again, been doing nothing but retreating. Morale was low among his men, uh, among Congress. Unfortunately for Washington, the enlistments of his men were about to expire at the end of the year. And he knew if he didn't do something to change the tide of the war that uh, by the time the spring thaw came, it would likely just reveal the corpse, not only of his army, but of the revolutionary cause. So recognizing the position he was in, he made the decision to make an attack against the New Jersey town of Trenton, which is right on the Delaware River, but on the opposite side of the river from where Washington had made his encampment. He determined to do this to attack the day after Christmas. 
December 26th. And so on the 25th, he got orders out to his men that this operation would take place. He optimistically planned for four converging columns to move on Trenton simultaneously at dawn on the 26th. A couple of columns would move down the west side of the river and attack across the river directly towards Trenton, part of them to occupy and fix reinforcement force to keep them from getting to Trenton. But the main force he was going to lead himself. He was going to cross the Delaware about nine miles north of Trenton late on the 25th and then make his way the nine miles south of Trenton, be in position for a dawn attack. Christmas Day dawned bright and clear, but as the day went on, Clouds started rolling in, temperatures started to drop. And about four in the afternoon, as Washington's men were preparing to cross the river, it started to rain. Then it turned to sleet and it turned to snow. And so as they're making the way across the Delaware River, which was fairly well choked with ice flows at the time, Washington is standing on the shore watching this. We can't imagine what was going through his mind, but he was, he was absolutely determined to, to, to make this attack. He had hoped to have all his men across the river by midnight. It was 3 a.m. before the last of them actually got across the river. So at that point, he's always three, almost three to four hours behind his schedule of wanting to be at Trenton at dawn. So he began making his way south with a force of about 2,500 men or so. And as they, they got just north of Trenton, he split his force into two columns one to converge on Trenton a little bit from the south, and the other under his command to move directly against Trenton. And sunrise was at about 7.20 that morning. But when the sun came up, he was still a couple miles away from Trenton. So an attack at dawn simply was not going to take place. He felt he had maintained operational security at this point, but he wasn't certain. And so as his men were filing by him on the road through the now freezing mud, he was telling them with as quiet a voice as he could, stick by your officers, stick by your officers, for God's sake, stick by your officers. They approach Trenton and they have an initial firefight with the outposts at Trenton. And at that point, the alarm is given. But Washington men move very quickly. And the Hessians, by the myth that we now understand it, were all drunk from celebrating Christmas the, the day before. But by best accounts, that simply was not true. They were exhausted because they had been responding to raids by local militia for some time. And they had been up late because there had been a raid unbeknownst to Washington um, Christmas night. So they were exhausted. But nevertheless, they began to respond from this first initial firefight on, on the, the outskirts of Trenton. Washington got his men moving. He got his chief artillery officer, a man named Henry Knox to get artillery lined up at the top of the two main roads in Trenton, King Street and Queen Street. So he had a clear of lane of fire directly down the road. At this point, the Hessians are now starting to come out of their barracks and, and trying to get themselves organized. And Washington can hear off in the distance to his right fire picking up, an exchange of fire. And that told him that his other column had now converged on Trenton. What he didn't know, and probably best he didn't, is that the other columns that were to attack Trenton from the west side of the river had turned back because their commanders believed the conditions were simply too great and Washington would have turned back, back as well. So now he had only about half the force he was expecting as this fight was now picking up at, at Trenton. As you tell this story, it's this kind of last ditch effort 
he's had these setbacks and, you know, Washington, other people are turning back, but Washington's like, we're doing this. Was Washington like just the, would anybody else have done this or was Washington the right guy to lead the force that night? We don't know, right. If anybody else would have done the same, but we, we certainly do know that other commanders facing the same conditions turn back. And so in, in this case, Washington, I, I think, was the right guy at the right place. Whether his, his key subordinate, a general named Nathaniel Green, would have pressed on or not, we don't know. But Washington was absolutely determined. There was word um, before the operation began that the Hessians may have been forewarned. Washington said, we're going anyway, whether that was wise or not. He said, we're going because he recognized if this was not a successful operation, if he didn't do something, the revolution was likely going to be over anyway. So it really took Washington and, and his determination, which I think is one of his key qualities as a leader, the determination he, he showed throughout eight very long, long, very long years of war. And truthfully, it was the right decision because the, the Hessians were unable to reorganize themselves to execute a, an effective counterattack. In fact, the Hessian commander attempting to do so was mortally wounded. By the time the day is over, Washington's men have killed 22 Hessians, wounded 84, captured 900 at a cost of two of his men dying from exposure and four of them wounded. Six total casualties for the Americans from this fight uh, versus uh, nearly 1,500 Hessian casualties. Just wanted to take a moment and thank our newest sponsor, Alpha Coffee Company. A veteran-owned business whose coffee is premium, 100% freshly roasted Arabica coffee. Since their founding, Alpha Coffee has donated over 18,500 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer 10% military discounts and 10% discounts for subscriptions. So purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. Washington um, got his men back across the river wanted a little bit more. And so a few days later on January 3rd, he convinced his men to stay for one more fight and successfully executed the Battle of Princeton as significant of a victory for, that Washington pulled off, much to the credit of his own courage and again, determination for keeping the, the fight going at Princeton. There were dark days ahead. Valley Forge that most Americans are familiar with was yet to come. And the war wouldn't end until 1781. But that fight at Trenton, had that not occurred, again, we don't know, we, we have to play with what ifs here. Had that not occurred, it is certainly likely that um, if the American cause was still alive, it would have been on, on life support. So does this painting and this story kind of represent an underdog story? Yeah, I think the whole American Revolution represents an underdog story. And the painting captures that. The fact that this really is a desperation operation uh, against conditions that actually end up favoring Washington a little bit. The, the Hessians just couldn't imagine that there would be a, a significant attack that night. But nevertheless, it are conditions that Washington would, would not have preferred. And as well, I think uh, the painting represents, if not fully accurately, uh, the diversity of the forces that Washington had and that the American cause really represented. Towards the bow of the boat in the painting is, is a man wearing a Scotch bonnet uh, representing the recent immigrants. There's an African-American man in the painting. There's what certainly appears to be a woman in the painting. There's a Native American in this boat as well. And the, the man holding the flag is a lieutenant 
John Monroe, who, of course, goes on to become president sometime later. So the, the painting, again, why it is such part of our national consciousness just encapsulates so much of who we are as Americans. And, of course, coordinating it with, with, with Christmas was, was not a bad move on, on Washington's part either. But Washington, your earlier question, I think was absolutely the, the essential man at this point. What lessons can we learn from George Washington today? Like, are, is his style of leadership and and the way he commanded, or are are those lessons still applicable to military leaders today? I think certainly so, and this isn't exclusive to Washington. We have right a, a historical buffet of military commanders in the past that we can look to, and in many instances, one can serve as good of an example as others. But Washington, I, I believe, is a great representative of two leadership qualities. I think in the United States and, of course, other countries around the world, we, we find it's quite compelling. One is what I typically call the essential leadership quality, and that is integrity. Washington at the time was known for unquestionable integrity, and he worked to maintain that reputation, and which is what really allowed him to carry through so many people through the American Revolution. The second quality that Washington demonstrated, I usually refer to as the decisive quality uh, of leadership, and that was unshakable determination. He was bound and determined to see this revolution and through. And, and we think of the challenges he faced from all sides over eight years of this war with so much to lose. It's really astounding that he was able to do this. So this combination of integrity and determination we, we see in Washington, I think can be quite compelling, certainly for military leaders today. And Washington, as with so many of leaders in the past, I think he's also a good representation for young commanders, young officers, young leaders of looking at how Washington became the kind of leader he did, looking at his early life and seeing that. He consciously made decisions to learn from his own mistakes. He had a mentor in, in his life, his, his half-brother, older brother, Lawrence, who he paid attention to and learned from. And at each step of the way, Washington was making the conscious decision to do that, to learn from his mistakes, recognizing he had a mentor and learning from him. And other commanders in, you know, in American history, Ulysses S. Grant was the same way. Eisenhower was the same way. And many of us, right, we had those opportunities to learn from our experiences. We may have a mentor, but our mentor, but are we wise enough to see that mentor is there and, and take advantage of it? So for new commanders, uh, inexperienced commanders, I think very much there, there's a lot from Washington. So Washington, I think, provides good examples, not just for young leaders, but for senior commanders as well. A few years ago, a, a lieutenant general was here at the command, uh, command general staff college speaking to the students. And he pointed out that today, as the United States begins shifting our attention somewhat away from counterinsurgency in a coin fight to the potential of a peer near peer fight, large scale combat operations, that today's most senior commanders really do not have experience with large-scale combat operations against a peer near peer. And the lieutenant general's point was that because of that, they do not have experience in dealing with the kind of casualties that the United States could potentially see in a peer near peer fight. And his point was that to prepare for that mentally, emotionally, 
about the only way to really begin to prepare for that was to read about commanders who have faced the same circumstances in, in the past. And I think you can make that same argument simply about losing a fight, losing a battle. Not many American commanders today have really experienced that. And so individuals like Washington can give some insights for senior commanders in looking at how did Washington deal with a series of battlefield losses there in, in the second half of 1776? How did he deal with his civilian masters in Congress? How did he deal with his peer officers? How did he deal with his junior officers with losses like that? And again, other commanders, U.S. Grant can uh, give experiences in large-scale casualties. Field Marshal William Slim from World War II, British commander in the India-Burma theater, in his book, uh, Defeat from Victory, has wonderful examples of how to deal with loss and how to deal with, with significant casualties. I love that you bring up Slim and, and hit the preface he wrote in that book is one of my favorites because he talks about if you read commanders share, you know, their memoirs or biographies, or if you read them, kind of get an insight into the decisions they made, like what helped them, what hindered them, the lucks they had. And then how he says that, you know, he might by showing how one man attempted the art of command be of use to those who later themselves have to exercise it. And so that's a that's been one of my favorite ones over the years. Yeah, Slim. Um, uh, he he also makes a point. Uh, he he says at one point that you all have leadership in you. Develop it by thought, by training, by practice. And I think that that he he really addresses the point that leaders simply are not born. They do not come out that way. Even Washington, Grant, Eisenhower, Slim, they did not just pop out one day as these fantastic leaders. And that's sort of the, the point I was making about for individuals new, new to command, new to leadership positions, that it is a skill that can be developed through conscious thought and through practice. You may not become a Washington, but you can certainly become that much better. And I think what, what is, is almost universal among those great commanders of the past who wrote memoirs, who wrote recollections, is that point, that you can become good officers, you can become good leaders, but it takes conscious and consistent work. And that's what we see, again, with Washington. Even with the, the short, limited amount of documentation we have on, the, on Washington's early life, we can see those elements are there in place and, and him making those, those kind of, of key decisions. Uh, so I agree with you. Slim is Slim is a great example. It's a great point. I know, you know, we talked to um, Brigadier General Steve Marks um, in one mm-hmm. of our previous episodes, and I asked him that same question: if if you were born to do this, are you a, or are leaders born? And he kind of had the same answer that that you had: that it's not just something that is inherent in you. There are certain qualities that can be inherent that give people maybe an advantage, but leading and and good leadership and leader development is exactly that: it's development, it's work, and it takes effort. Yeah. And I often, uh, with, with my students, when I'm talking about this, I'll bring up someone like Mozart, right? One of the greatest composers of all time. You know, was it a coincidence that his father was a music instructor and one of the better known composers of that era or more relevant, I think, people today are at least known today? Is it a coincidence that Tiger Woods' father was a golf pro and started working with him at such a young age? And yes, Tiger Woods has extraordinary talent. But without the hard work and that development early on, he would not have become the the great golfer that he is. And I think it's the same with with leadership and and commanders. It's conscious, deliberate effort consistently throughout their careers that produces that kind of greatness. 
And so you talk about learning, learning how like leaders to conscious effort to learn how to become a great leader. So what books would you recommend that leaders pick up? You know, Jacob and I talked about releasing this episode over the holiday break and and folks can listen to it on their drives. What books would you recommend picking up when they get to their destination or or even if they finish this episode and, and want to download an audible book, what would you recommend them grabbing to kind of start that journey to learn to be a better leader? Well, of course, the first one I'm going to say is a book called The Art of Command, American Military Leadership from George Washington to Colin Powell that I I, um, I edited with a, a colleague of mine. It's a series of essays on some of America's great military commanders from Washington to Colin Powell, focusing in on certain qualities and characteristics. Washington, of course, is the, the model for uh, integrity. U.S. Grant is our model for determination. And those are the four, first two chapters in the book. And really it's a means of representing our take that integrity and determination are really the, the two sort of foundational leadership qualities. Next to that, if, if you know, thinking about Washington, a historian named Edward Lengel, it's L-E-N-G-E-L, has a leadership biography of Washington and, and is simply called General George Washington, a military life. And I think it is it is a, a good study of Washington, specifically as a military commander that sort of lays out his early life. And the book we've mentioned, um, Slim's book, Defeat into Victory. Again, I think there is so much in Slim's book that can prove useful for, as, as I was suggesting earlier, leaders at any point in their life that he has such great, great lessons there. Those are the first three I would I would sort of tick off. Um, as, as a good starting point for leadership study. And then we would like to add the, the blog from the Green Notebook to the, all the lessons from Green Notebooks that we've had and then the podcast as well. Yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> Professor Laver, we really appreciate you coming on. Joe and I sat down and we talked about wanting to do a kind of a Christmas episode or a holiday episode. And you were his first thought. He said he had spoken to you and he thought it'd make a great episode to hear a little bit about our history and time frame in which this occurred. So we thank you uh, again so much for just coming on and, and sharing your time with us. Yeah, very, very happy to help out. It's hard to go wrong with Washington. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Labor. And we, we hope you have a great holiday coming up. Thank you. You guys as well and all your listeners too. So thank you again to all our listeners and thank you for joining us and please join us next week. Make sure you check us out at uh, fromthegreennotebook.com. You can read posts, listen to past episodes of the podcast, subscribe to the monthly reading list and uh, Sunday email. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook and Facebook and Instagram as well. Finally, please subscribe to the podcast and give us five stars on iTunes if you like what we're doing here so you can help us get From the Green Notebook out to more listeners. So I'm Jacob Goronsky signing off. I will hope to see you next week. Oh,